Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. If you're in New Brunswick or Nutley, you're joining us online. Welcome to Poll Faith, Politics, the Future of America. Hey, Morristown, can we welcome all those people joining us on the broadcast? Thrilled you guys are here. Today you're in for a treat because we have a special guest. He has traveled all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, the dirty south. Come up to, uh, to dirty Jersey, I guess. I don't know what to say about that. But his name is Jonathan Merritt, and he is a faith and culture writer uh, for Christianity Today, USA Today. Frequently appears on CNN, Fox News, etc. Fascinating story. I read Jonathan's book, A Faith of Her Own, Following Jesus Beyond the Culture Wars, this past summer. And it's riveting. Um, in many ways, Jonathan had a ringside seat uh, at the table with the rise of the religious right. You grew up kind of having pancakes with Jerry Falwell. Uh, and now has seen a shift generationally in the way that younger evangelicals are engaging in the public square. He's here to share a little bit of his story, what he's been learning. We'll have some question and answer afterwards with that. But do you guys welcome Jonathan Merritt? Thank you so much, Jonathan. Glad you're here, brother. Awesome. Well, there's no way I'm going to match that energy this morning. Good grief. That is crazy. Um, it is a pleasure to be here and to hang out with your, your, your volunteers, your team, your staff. You guys have an unbelievable group of people serving here at Liquid Church. Uh, Washington Post columnist Michael Gerson says, American Christianity is experiencing head-snapping change. That, that we're, we're in a moment now where, where rising Christians are reevaluating their wholesale participation in the culture wars. And Gerson is not alone. So some of you, maybe you, 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 you watch cable news or, or you read sort of political magazines, and, and you know this. You know that pundits and commentators at nearly every major news outlet have made similar observations, noting that Christian political engagement is undergoing profound change. But that leaves us with some questions. We're changing. What, what kind of change are we experiencing exactly? What are those key differentiators between today's Christians and the last generation of Christians with regard to the public square? Or, or maybe even more specifically, what do we mean when we say following Jesus beyond the culture wars? I mean, what do we even mean when we say culture wars? And, and how did Christians get involved in these things? And is, and is that a, a good thing or, or a bad thing today? I want to talk with you about what I'm calling the new shape of Christian political engagement. Soren Kierkegaard, one of my favorite philosophers, said, life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. And I think he's right. I think we have to look back to move forward. So travel with me, if you will, back in time. Back to another place as, as we take a look at the last 50 years of history. A time in, in which Christians experience what sociologists Robert Putnam and David Campbell call a shock and two aftershocks. America in the 1950s, some would say it was the heyday of Christianity in our country. 
church attendance rose during this decade from 37% in 1950 to 51% in 1957. That's astounding. Gospel tunes mixed with popular music on mainstream radio stations. And people during this time, unlike today, maintained great respect for Christians, for clergy, for religious institutions. And Christians influenced and shaped public policy. They, they shaped the public square. During this decade, In God We Trust was adopted as our country's official motto. You remember growing up and saying, one nation under God? It was in this decade that under God was inserted into the Pledge of Allegiance. And yet all was not as it seemed because this decade has also been called the high tide of civil religion. Civil religion. It was a time in which the Christian faith was as much a cultural expression as it was a religious thing. In fact, so undistinguished was religious fervor in the mid-20th century, President Eisenhower proclaimed in 1954, our government makes no sense unless it is founded on a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. And that's when American Christians were blindsided by what Putnam and Campbell call the shock. The 1960s and 70s brought on the American Cultural Revolution, which was a blitzkrieg of social change. Courageous African-American leaders forced America to confront her racism as they marched in the civil rights movement. A blood-soaked Vietnam brought on the anti-war movement. A growing awareness of ecological degradation awakened the environmental movement. And changing sexual standards throughout society made possible the gay rights movement, illegal drug use grew, feminism and women's liberationists fought to redefine gender roles, and this new thing we were calling Hollywood suddenly accepted and grew more comfortable with more profanity and more promiscuity both in film and on television. And while this was going on in society, on the other edge, the courts seemed to be uh, unraveling the other edge of the American cultural fabric, banning state-sponsored prayer in schools in 1962, mandatory Bible reading in 63, legalizing contraception in 65, and abortion in 1973. Religiously, there was another component because the creeping liberalism theologically of the other part of the century was now threatening traditional orthodox theology. By the 1960s, the growing religiosity of Americans that developed in the 50s had developed the tumor of skepticism. The academy had fully embraced what we call moral relativism, biblical criticism, and the number of Americans, and get this, the number of Americans claiming that religion was very, very important, it fell from 75% in 1952 to 52%. 2% in 1978. Weekly church attendance plummeted. Now you can imagine for those of you, maybe some of your parents are in this category, those who, who claimed to follow Jesus, who held tightly to their faith, who had seen this high tide of religion in the 1950s, imagine what they felt like. They were reeling, believing that America was, in the words of Robert Bork, slouching toward Gomorrah. And in response to this, our nation experienced the first aftershock as they re-entered the public square and mobilized to turn back the tide. Pastors began preaching about moral decay, 
Christian mobilization efforts were formed to influence national elections. Those groups began educating Christians on political issues, encouraging them to get involved in the political process and vote for candidates who supported, quote, Christian positions. The fuse to the modern culture wars was lit and Christians everywhere were marching to take back America for Jesus Christ. Now, for a time, their efforts seemed to be working. For a brief moment, uh, church attendance rose. Christians were able to influence national elections of the highest order, leading Time magazine to declare 1976 the year of the evangelical. When Bill Clinton won the presidency, Christians led a movement to claim back both houses of Congress. But then it hit the second aftershock. A new generation, including many of the, you guys sitting in this room today, who had not experienced this, this bygone cultural revolution, began to see the partisan, polemical, and power-hungry expressions that we see among many Christians today and felt really dissatisfied. As a result, many left the faith altogether, many of your friends leading to a 2010 USA Today headline that proclaimed young adults less devoted to faith. And they weren't kidding. In fact, you want to see how, 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 how effective this partisan approach to Christianity has been. A full 31% fewer young people regularly attend church today than in the heat of the Cultural Revolution. 31% fewer young people today. And yet there are others like like you, who've stayed. Discontent to accept culture war and Christianity's strategy for political engagement. Searching for a new way to be Christian, a new way to follow Jesus in the public square. And as you and I, these new Christians, are coming of age, they differ from their forebears, I think, in at least three substantial ways. First, the last generation was highly partisan. As one pollster noted, if I identify myself as Republican or Democrat, it tells the listener much less about me than if they know my religion. If they know their religion, consequently, and church attendance, it guarantees you know their electoral preference. The last generation of conservative Christians saw the Republican Party as an important ally. And similarly, liberal Christians viewed the Democratic Party. They also focused on a narrow agenda. Most conservative evangelicals, for example, have a very, very tight uh, agenda. They focus on one or two issues. Anybody want to tell me what those are? Abortion and gay marriage. And liberal Christians focus almost exclusively on social justice issues. And so this narrow agenda was tightening over the years and became really, I think, the second marker for that generation. And thirdly, they were very divisive. See, in order for any war to be successfully waged, one must divide and conquer. And the American culture wars were no exception. Heightened rhetoric, name-calling, angry speeches. These mark the tone of the culture wars. You've seen it, right? Fox News, MSNBC. And culture war in Christianity lives, I think, maybe perhaps we could even say it thrives, right here, right at the, the nexus of these three characteristics, a partisan movement aligning itself with a party, divisive and angry rhetoric, and a very narrow 
agenda. Now, there's a contrast coming because a new generation is becoming increasingly independent, not partisan. They're recognizing the limitations and the pitfalls of partisan politics. For example, a really interesting, Pew did a study in 2001 of young evangelicals aged 18 to 34. In 2001, a full 55% of young evangelicals said that they were self-described Republicans. They repeated the study in 2007, and the number fell to 40%. Only 40% were now self-described Republicans. Well, what happened? Are we just seeing more people become Democrats? No, actually, you're not. Only 5% migrated to the Democratic Party. The majority of those, the 10%, are now self-described independents or unaffiliated. As Tim Keller observes, today's Christians may be the vanguard of some major new religious, social, and political arrangements that could make the older form of the culture wars obsolete. Describing this way of thinking, Tim Keller says, they have an orthodox faith, but it it doesn't fit the current categories of either liberal Democrat or conservative Republican. Additionally, they also pursue a broad agenda. Today's Christians don't want the test of their faith to be the way that they vote or what they think about one or or two issues. Rather, they believe that our faith calls us to engage a range of issues, from caring for creation to alleviating poverty and protecting the poor to looking out for immigrants and waging peace. And finally, they desire to have civil dialogue You model this at Liquid Church. They want to have sit down and have a conversation and not get mad about it. Actually, Americans in general believe that the public square has grown too negative. Most of you would probably agree with that. Most Americans are weary of the reactionary, angry, polemical language that fills the radio waves and the television waves and the billboards and the the speeches that stymies progress and the common good. A full Two-thirds of Americans, get this, a full two-thirds of our citizens are fed up with Congress, Republicans, Democrats, the Tea Party, and the Occupy Everything movement. (laughs) Two-thirds of us. A new generation of Christians now recognizes the ways in which our cultural coarseness has affected our own communities. And they want to see a change here. These Christians are not seeking ways to divide and conquer. They want to partner and achieve to make progress. They're unafraid to collaborate with those that they disagree with on other issues. Young Christians and their leaders are showing up throughout the public square, working on common ground agendas. They don't just want to vote their faith. They want to live their faith. It's at the nexus of these three distinctives that we're finding what I call the new shape of Christian political engagement, an effort to follow Jesus beyond the culture wars, a way of living that raises the bar above labels like conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. And I suspect that most of you in this room, given our geographical location here in the Northeast, Given what looks like to be a fairly youngish median age, I bet most of you are probably right here. This is what you want to be, and this is what you want to see. You want to follow Jesus in a way that moves beyond partisanship to a greater level of independence. 
moving from a narrow agenda to a, a broader one, from divisive rhetoric to civil dialogue. But, but if we're already here, we have to answer a question. Where do we go from here? What, what is the next step for us, who, those of us who claim to follow Jesus? I mean, what's missing from this equation today? I want to offer what I believe the missing element is for many of us, and I'm going to sum it up in one word, embodiment. Embodiment. The Apostle John once wrote, this is how they will know we're living in him. This is how they'll know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. To live. To touch. To, to, to heal. To breathe the same air. To share a common table. This is how the world will know we are living in him. And when the problems of this world threaten to stomp out the, the red embers of our faith, I think that the apostle whispers to us, live like Jesus did. When 147 million orphans cry out from, from musty beds in dusty orphanages, and when 3 million people die annually from preventable water-related diseases, I think we hear his words, Live as Jesus did. And when our nation allows the termination of more than one million infants a year, I think the ancient apostle reminds us that we should live as Jesus did. And how did Jesus live his life exactly? I mean, when you read the New Testament, how, how did Jesus live? Well, Jesus was, he was hands-on. He was always like touching people and playing with children and, and rubbing spit in people's eyes. <laughs> and this, I think, is in stark contrast to most culture-warring Christians who see politics as ground zero for following Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just advocate. He didn't just tell people to go out and, and engage the political systems. He lived and he dwelled and he touched and he healed. He was present with those who needed him, never content to let his disciples go out and do the work for him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among them, John writes in the first chapter of his gospel. Jesus wasn't content to shout down his agenda, his party platform from heaven. He became flesh. He wrapped himself in skin and came to be with us and to breathe the same air we breathe and touch us and heal us and show us that way. To live as, as Jesus did means to take our convictions, our, to use a political term, our values, and not vote our values necessarily, but to let those values influence the way we actually live. Not just the way we vote. Of course, now, following Jesus doesn't mean that we flee politics doesn't mean that we're a non-political people or an apolitical people. If you read the New Testament, whatever following Jesus means, whatever it looks like, it has to be a public thing. You, you, you can't just go and spend time in your prayer closet on Sunday and then live your life however you wish, Monday through Saturday. Following Jesus has to be something that's lived out in public. 19th century abolitionists had to live their life 
and their faith in public. 20th century civil rights leaders had to live out their faith in public. But get this, we should never equate advocacy with faithfulness. We never confuse those things. I love this this, this quote by John Stott, he says, while personal commitment to change our lifestyle without political action to change systems of injustice lacks effectiveness, political action without personal commitment lacks integrity. Do we have integrity as a movement, as a faith movement? Are we living out, embodying the things that we say we believe? You see, Jesus' life was actually the key to Jesus' effectiveness. When he opened his mouth, he was a great teacher. His words would just melt crowds. But there was countless good teachers in Jesus' day. I mean, what set Jesus as you know, a notch above the rest of them? There were traveling rabbis all over the place. The scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 7 something fascinating. It says that Christ left people slack-jawed because he taught as one who had authority. Not like the teachers of the law. Now when you read this, you think, what could Matthew mean exactly when, when he says he taught with authority, not as one of the other teachers? I mean, Jesus was a rabbi, but he didn't have a synagogue. Jesus was a, a teacher, but no school claimed him. So what does Matthew mean? What gives? The difference from other teachers that set Jesus apart was that he didn't just prophesy from on high. He didn't just stand on the platform and tell everyone the the, the, the three-step process to being a good person, promoting a list of rules and claiming to care about issues. Jesus embodied the things he taught. Jesus was legit. He lived, he lived it out, and people saw that he wasn't a hypocrite and he wasn't fake, but he actually embodied these things. And, and, and so as Jesus followers, we can't just flip through the browning pages of our Bible, reading about Christ's life and then living a different way. And going about minding our business, voting or mobilizing or advocating is sort of the cheap way to think that we're doing the will of God. We can't rely on others to do our work. Christians must be present among those who need us to give ourselves to those who need us and for those who need us. Being faithful disciples of Jesus in this, the 21st century, and being a disciple of Jesus in this century actually looks a lot like following Jesus in that century. Making good on our professions of faith. Come, follow me. And the more that I press my feet into the footprints of our Lord, the more that I I read about the way that Jesus lived, the more I hear him calling us away from an advocacy-only religion to a follow-me faith. Away from this advocacy-only religion to a follow-me faith. Almost two years ago, I was in Calcutta, India to spend some time working in Mother Teresa's home for the sick and dying. I'll never forget that morning. I remember the... The sky was, was gray with, with smog, and my stomach was just like fluttering with anxiety. There was no water that morning running in the part of the city where I live, so I was unable to take a shower. It's an inconvenience that I now realize is normative for much of the developing world. Luckily, I'd filled two buckets with water, clean but not drinkable, before going to bed the previous night. I stripped off my clothes and 
bent down on the, 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 the cold concrete floor, took the, the frigid water and poured it over my body as I began to think about what, would it, what is it going to be like to be in this historic facility. When I arrived at the Missionaries of Charity convent, I stopped by Mother Teresa's grave for a moment to pay my respects. And her simple white stone grave sort of, I think, aligned her death with her life. No extravagance, folding chairs around the wall, no decoration. After a few moments of quiet, I left to meet Sister Mercy, who registered me for service and sent me to Primdon. It means house of love. I entered, walked over to the male ward across a courtyard where volunteers scurried between patients, bandaging their wounds, cutting their hair, shaving their faces, and I couldn't help but think, I wonder if this is what the Pool of Bethesda looked like. A horde of suffering males, most of them laying on the ground in the courtyard, looking out into the distance, never speaking. And as I slipped between bodies, I, I, you know, I couldn't imagine what shame these men must have felt. I, I wanted to know what they were thinking. My feet led me up the stairs of the men's housing unit, and the conditions, believe it or not, worsened. Beds were laid out on a grid throughout the expansive room. Emaciated bodies lay upon the sheets and moans filled the air. I imagine that the aches of their illnesses worsened in their life's isolation. And I just stood there motionless for a minute, thinking and contemplating, processing. And then a voice shouted from across the room in a German accent. He said, you, sir, come assist me. Following him, I approached a patient lying next to the door whose foot was swollen to two or three times its normal size. The skin's green hue indicated it was probably gangrenous. He hasn't bathed in more than ten years, the German informed me. The skin around his wound is like the scales of a fish and must be scrubbed before we can treat him. It's going to be very painful and I'll need to hold him down. Then he reached in his pocket and he handed me a brush like the one I clean my grill with. Scrub, he said, grasping the man's shoulders and pressing him into the wall on which he was leaning. Scrub with all your strength. As you can imagine, as soon as I began, the man began to scream and he began to wail, but I pushed through his cries, continuing to press the bristles of this brush deep into his foot, dead skin accumulating on the tops of my sandal-strapped feet and collecting in piles between my toes. Skin bleeding in places, but the German continued to press me, and despite my efforts to ignore them, I'll never forget the wails of this patient. He said, please, Baba, please, stop, please. Baba means father. He thought I was a priest. Tears pooled in my eyes and fell down onto my skin-covered feet as I kept scrubbing this man's foot. And finally we finished, and the German handed me a, a jar of Vaseline and a pair of toenail clippers and said, now make him love you again. I rubbed the salve into his fresh skin on his leg before clipping his gnarled toenails. His breathing patterns returned to normal. And as I looked for a place to go away and have a good cry, uh, the bell rang, signaling it was time for tea. I took my time walking over to the pavilion, hoping maybe to stave off the emotional shock and 
And I thought, you know, maybe I should go and talk to this German man. He seems to be a wise guy, has a lot of years behind him. I could offer him some worthwhile conversation. His name was Helmut. And he told me he'd been coming to Prim Dawn for 10 years in six-month rotations. During his time, he'd become something of a self-educated doctor, though when he was in Germany, he was a Lutheran minister. And he said something interesting to me that day. He said he feared that the great days of the German church were behind them because Christian leaders in Germany were struggling with an increasingly secular society. They had now started focusing their energy on petitioning the government for institutional recognition. That the church was now busy fighting with businesses and in politics, trying to get everyone to recognize their existence and their preferences and their values. But along the way, he said, they'd lost themselves. They'd lost sight of their, their mission. I suppose the German church and the American church are not so different as one might think, he said. I suppose not. And then he turned to me with a look that only an aged and experienced person can give. It was, it was as if his eyes were prophesying, telling me to, to listen up because something was coming. Christians in America and Germany forget it's not what you think or how much power you have. It's not how you vote that changes the world. And he lifted up his shaking, pruny digits and said, it's your hands that do the changing. I held that man as you cleaned his feet, he said. Did we change him perhaps, but he'll need to be cleaned again? I do know that he's changed us. And in a small way, God worked through us and you as you scrubbed. And as a result, the world moved just a touch closer to what God would have it be. And that's really why I'm here, he said. When I had my own congregation, I read Jesus' words in Matthew about being the salt of the earth, but I didn't fully understand them. Now I know. As Helmut's words wash over me this day, as fresh as they were then, I think about the American church in this election season. Over the last 30 or 40 years, we've come to believe that the solutions to our world's greatest problems can be solved through political engagement, through voting. We think if we can only vote enough people into office, into powerful places who think like us and hold our values, then we'll be able to solve the world's problems. It's a weird way of living. I think it would have seemed strange to first century Christians, and it's had some dreadful effects because if that's what following Jesus means, basically to just march down to the local elementary school and cast a vote every two to four years, and what does that mean for us? For some of us, that actually sounds quite attractive, right? Because it allows people who call themselves Christians to live a life of ease, filled with coffee shop conversations and soccer practices, Super Bowl parties and book clubs, without having to worry about being inconvenienced with changing our lifestyles and all of this following Jesus stuff. As Christian mystic Jean Vanier has said, many people are good at talking about what they're doing, but in fact do little. Others do a lot, but they don't talk about it. And those are the ones that make a community live. You know this in your church. The, the church is built on people who do what we call the little things, but it is filled with people who only want to do the big things. 
But it's not the people who are standing on the podium and preaching platitudes that are bringing life to a community. It's the ones who get in the game without a promise of becoming known or becoming wealthy, who engage their hands to make a difference. And so I ask you to dream with me as we close out this day. What would it look like if you, the people of Liquid Church, began not not to vote differently? What if you began to live differently? What if you began to take this following Jesus stuff seriously? What if everyone sitting in this room banded together and said, we're going to stop racism from marching forward in this community even one more generation? What if the people in this room, if you, if, you, if you took the people who were on the street and you paid for their educations? What if you made sure that not one child in the state of New Jersey went to bed hungry? What if you opened up your homes and in turn you shut down New Jersey's foster care system? What if you reached out to unwed mothers who are at risk for having an abortion and you said to them, You want to bring your child to term, but you feel like you can't. You come see us here at Liquid Church. We'll make sure that you can bring that child to term. We'll take care of your needs. We'll take care of your child's needs. How might the debates on education and abortion and poverty and tax reform in this community look different if we live that way? Or maybe we can ask even a more important question. How might the image that people have in their minds of Christians or of Jesus look different if we live that way? The opportunity, I think, is so great. And the task for us is so clear. My prayer for you, for Liquid Church, is that this congregation, that your families, that for you as individuals, that you will begin to let what you say you believe light a, a fire in your gut. That you would make a decision in this place on this morning. Change the way you live. That you would begin letting your faith incarnate itself. That your words would be made flesh and dwell among the people of this state, of this community. Helmet's words are still true, folks. As true as the day He spoke them. It's your hands that do the changing. But you know what? You've got to make the decision to use them. And my prayer for you is that for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of this community, you will make the decision to start letting your hands do the changing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Father, you are a good God, and you're a gracious God, and um, you're a God who loves us even though we're, we're sort of messed up and broken and we don't, we don't always do things well or do things right. Um, you're a God who loves broken people. Make us a God who loves broken people. God, this church is doing amazing things. God, I pray you would continue to use the people of Liquid Church to transform the communities where where they're worshiping. God, that you would use them to transform the state of New Jersey and these United States, that they would transform the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we we pray for your blessings on, on these people as they go out. May they be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. May their hands... Uh, Make real change. We ask these things in the name of Christ.
Amen. Amen. Can you thank Jonathan for coming all the way to share with us? Thank you, John. So great. Can you hang out for a couple minutes? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Just chat. Uh, fascinating stuff. I can't uh, recommend this book to you uh, highly enough. We'll have copies uh, in the lobby after we dismiss in just a couple minutes. I just had a couple questions because some of the stories that you just touched on um, uh-huh. this morning, um, opening up, having pancakes with Jerry Falwell, uh, yeah. visiting Billy Graham with your father, you kind of had a ringside seat to the rise of the religious right. What impact did you see politics have on the witness of the church? Well, well this, first of all, the statistics are there, and you guys already know how this plays out. You've talked to your friends. Statistically, the majority of young non, non-church people see the church as judgmental, hypocritical, too political, anti-gay. All, you've heard all of those things, and it really is true. These are attitudes yeah. that were birthed out of this movement in the last 30 years. And so I think it's had a devastating effect on the church. And in fact, what you've seen is, is as religion has become more political, Conversely, people have become less religious. Interesting. And so people's faith in faith is waning as we've become too political because I think they've seen us marching to the beat of another person's drum. Research says that two-thirds of um, young Christians, 18 to age, about age 25, are actually leaving the Christian church. Is this why? I think this is part of the reason why most, many sociologists do point to that. They say that people are they're fed up, that if being a Christian just means voting a certain way, they say, you know what, I'm out. They, they're still spiritual. Yeah. Your friends, are, are most of them statistically, still have this spiritual impulse. Yeah. They're just sick of the church because they've seen the way the church has been, it's been co-opted. We've been reduced to little more than a voting block that politicians pander to with their religious language, and they go, you know what? Uh, I'll, go, I'll go follow God in my own way. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because I think we're all familiar, you know, the, the, the platform or the agenda of the church has been pretty narrow for the last, you know, three decades, you know, abortion, gay rights, et cetera. It's been very, very narrow. But you see that broadening in a number of younger evangelical churches. Tell us how. Yeah. I think, I think many young people are still very, uh, they're very animated around the issue of, of the sanctity of life or, or whatever you want to call that. Statistically, 52%. Uh, of young evangelicals, however, say, we're not wanting to fight about this gay marriage thing. Okay. And so you're finding that they still want to have conversations about, about um, preserving the, the life of the unborn, but they're not really interested in, in the gay marriage debate. Uh, in addition to that, yeah. you're finding that very important to them are other issues like war, like poverty, like caring for orphans and, and, and things that, you know, these are things that they're not political issues. Like who doesn't want to care for, for, for orphans around the world? Who doesn't want to save the lives of people who are yeah. suffering in poverty? And so yeah. these are issues I think that are, that are really getting young Christians excited because yeah. they find, you know what? Jesus really, he cared about those issues too, and so maybe we should. So you're not advocating an abandonment of those issues. We want to still think critically about them, but maybe even broadening. When we talk about pro-life, for instance, here at Liquid, many of you have given towards our clean water causes. We've we've drilled over 50 wells, uh, you know, in Haiti, uh, Ethiopia, et cetera. And that's that's actually a pro-life issue. When you said 3 million orphans, uh, you know, die every year from lack of of clean water. What are some of the other ways? You wrote a book called um, God is Green, Environmental Stewardship. Yeah. Are you a closet liberal? I don't, it, it depends who you talk to. It depends who you talk to. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really, I, I don't like the, na- the, the title liberal all sure. that much. I don't really like the title conservative. Like, I just want to follow Jesus. And when I read yeah. the scriptures, one of the things I, I read is that God's made some really good things in this world. And he said, you know what? If, if, you, want, if you love me and you worship me, 
go take care of those things so that other people will experience me in the snow-capped mountain peaks and the purplish hue of a sunset. And so <laughs> these are really good things, and, and, and I think for a long time Christians have missed out on opportunities to care for God's good creation. And so that's just one issue yeah. that I think traditionally has been considered liberal, which is weird. Yeah. It should be an everyone issue. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because a lot of people look at Europe and say, is that where America is going to be in 70 years? Yeah. You have empty cathedrals, you know, what once was a thriving uh, movement in following Christ has yeah. now become more of a museum. Mm -hmm. Empty churches, post-Christian culture. Is that where America is going to be? Well, you know, there are two schools of thought, really, on this, on this question. Some people say, uh, when you look at Europe, you're looking into America's future. Yeah. You're, see you're catching a glimpse of where we're going. There's another a group of folks, and, and I would say I'm in this group, that says we're really not like Europe in that sense because we, we've always had in America a religious impulse. I okay. think that we're becoming like Europe in the sense that we are becoming, and we already are in places like New Jersey, post-Christian. Okay. We're not a Christian culture. Christian thoughts and frameworks and arguments are not animating large portions of society. But unlike Europe, yeah. we're not becoming post-religious. Our people still want to talk about spirituality, yeah. Yeah. they're just kind of sick of the way that the church has been bastardized and taken out of yeah. sort of its historical context and become sort of a, a lackey for, for different movements and different yeah. power figures in society. Yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes to some of these divisive issues, because, you know, uh, for instance, like gay marriage, right, that's very, especially in the, on the East Coast, the Supreme Court's going to be hearing about that. Right. Um, where do you see that? Like, I mean, you know, hindsight's 2020, 2015, 2020. Well, we look back on that issue of you know, gay folks who come to the church almost the way the church treated divorced people in the 60s, which was like, whoa, I don't know if they can yeah. be here and we gotta talk, have a special conversation. Yeah. Where do you see that headed? Well, I think on that issue, statistically, the conversation is over. Um, really? The, you know, we, we talk about it a lot, but a full 52% of young Christians, which traditionally have been the strongest advocates against gay marriage, say they support some form of civil unions or, or gay marriage. And so, and that number is growing. And so all we need right now really is some, some good death. And, and, and there will not be anyone that will be fighting against that. One of the impulses, I think, that, that one of the developments statistically that's driving this is that young Christians who are 18 to 34 are twice as likely as their elders to say they have a close friend who's gay. This issue, and, and, and statistically, yes. that is one of the biggest influences for changing the way someone believes. It is much easier, I often say, to fight a faceless agenda than to war against a friend. And so this is not a political statement or a statement sure. of my views, but statistically, there's, there's no one out there who looks at the changes in America and says, we're going to yeah. be fighting about this yeah. in 25 years. I mean, how do you wrestle with that? Jonathan also serves on the staff of Cross Point Church down in Atlanta. Uh, his father was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So you're not, ad you're not agitating for some new orthodoxy. You, you, you affirm the biblical um, you know, portrait ethos yeah. of heterosexual marriage, one man, one woman. So how do you wrestle with that as a pastor, you know, yeah. welcoming people to the church? Let me tell you, the church is traditionally at its worst. If you look at Christian history, it is at its worst when we are telling people what to do in a political sense. Okay. The church is at its best when, when they do exactly what you're doing here. When they're giving people a framework about how to think about these issues. The church, when it comes to politics, is best not when it's telling people what to think, but when it's teaching people how to think. Okay.
thinking biblically as, as you were describing correct. following Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, so much more I want to talk about. We're running out of time. Jonathan's going to be available uh, after service to talk a little bit uh, at the book table. But I want to end with this you know, final question because you tell a great story in your book about visiting Billy Graham. And uh, I went to Wheaton College, a big Billy Graham <laughs> fan. And right. uh, it was really interesting because going to his retreat, he had some, he's kind of an elder statesman of the evangelical church, and he had a unique kind of insight because he rubbed shoulders with a lot of presidents, people who were in power, yeah. but he never was sullied with that partisan label. Yeah. Tell us. Well, I don't know how many of you guys know this 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 uh, rich heritage here, but but Billy Graham's met with every president since Harry Truman. It's really Incredible. unbelievable. But but except for, he, I asked him, it was a really interesting question. I said, you know, you've been telling us about all the presidents. Um, how did you stay mostly nonpartisan, you know? He said, well, except for one exception, which he apologized for later, he said, every time I went to the Oval Office, mm -hmm. it was at their invitation and not my request. Okay. And I think, it, I think it says that that there are times where as Christians, God will open up doors for us to have influence in culture, but we're not meant to be power seekers. Uh, his, his, his daughter told an additional story that was really interesting. She said they were at this dinner for uh, those folks who had been on the cover of Time magazine. Mm -hmm. And he, they had sat near the Clintons, and this was during the heat of that whole mess, and, and, and they were being really kind to the Clintons and engaging them in winsome conversation. And afterwards, some friends came up and said, Dr. Graham, how can you go and talk to these people? They stand against everything we, quote-unquote, evangelicals believe in. Yeah. And Gigi said he had a great response to this guy um, that he had taught his children growing up. He said, you know, God judges the Holy Spirit convicts, and we love. And too many Christians try to do all three. <laughs> that is the truth. Well said. Well said. Good to talk to Dr. Graham. Um, I got to say, uh, you know, as somebody who God has called to a unique ministry, you're really standing uh, in the middle of the road trying to bridge the culture with the church. My guess is you get hit with a lot of rocks from both sides. Right. How can we pray for you? <laughs> well, that is, I guess that is the nature, the nature of a bridge. You get walked on from both sides. Uh, I, I, you know, just pray. I would say, don't even pray for me. Pray for people like this. You know, you serve at a church very long and you realize there, there are a lot of people who, who want to do the big work, the big jobs. But a community is built on the people who do what we consider the little things. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if this conversation is going to change, it's going to be folks like you incarnating the word. Yeah. Not, not, not people like me who are up here on the platform. And so pray for you. And, and I'll be praying for you that you guys go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Because this community, and it is yeah. changing. Yeah. People are talking about your church in places like my city. <laughs> right? You're changing this community. And I pray that you'll keep doing that for the sake of the kingdom. Awesome. Well, we want to pray for, uh, for Jonathan uh, after being with us this morning. He's headed actually into New York City uh, to appear, I think, on Fox News and the Joy Behar Show, which is a very interesting <laughs> bookend to your trip to the East Coast. So can we pray for him? Would you join me? Let's, let's pray for Jonathan. God, we thank you for our brother, our Lord, a new friend, and just the unique calling you've given him, Father. I thank you for the, the voice. I thank you. Uh, Lord, for the influence, and Lord, it comes with authority, not because of his pedigree, Father, but because of these, those, those wiggly hands, like helmet, Lord. He's willing to serve, and he has served you humbly, and I thank you that he's come to serve our church this morning this way. Bless him, God. I pray that um, because uh, his appointments even here in, on the East Coast, that people would see Jesus 
not religion, Father, not a political block, but they'd see Jesus Christ risen, saving us, and coming again through Jonathan. So thank you for this time, Lord. May we be the church that you desire. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said together, amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, We're sir. grateful for you, my man. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.